Welcome to the Whatnot Podcast, where we put the what into whatnot live every Wednesday night at 9 p.m. on Facebook and YouTube. It's Wednesday at 9 p.m. This is the Whatnot Podcast, where we put the what into whatnot. I'm Mike Z. I'm Chris. And we got a special guest that are down below us. Yeah, over on this side, Mr. Gerald Vance from the Appalachian Heritage Woodshop. Welcome, sir. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, I really like your all's intro. It's very, very professional. Uh, it's good uh, eye-catching. The music's good. I really like it. Well, thank you, sir. Yeah. It's the most professional thing about us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And we figured we'd let everyone down after the fact. Yeah. All right. So uh, it, it's we're coming up on a year of doing this. And I know for for the, almost that year, we wanted to have you on. And um, you kept telling us that, uh, you know, people would tell you maybe not to come on. And we always figured that was just because it's us. Um, so we'll cover that a little bit later on, but first tell us a little bit about you. Tell us a little bit about the, uh, Appalachian heritage Woodshop, And also we'll get into your PBS program, which is wrapping up season three. I'm in the process of, uh, uh, filming season three right now. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Uh, well, I started woodworking, uh, when I was about 14 years old, uh, I just turned 68 last week. So that'll tell you how long I've been doing some form of woodworking. Uh, I was very fortunate in the sense that I got to go back to college at the young age of 55 and get a uh, college degree in fine woodworking. Uh, I did that so that I could teach, you know, in order to teach at some uh, 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 post-secondary level, you needed uh, sheepskin. So that's what I uh, obtained. Um, what else you want to know? So, um, what were you doing in the chemical industry? I was like, a technician was... Uh, in research and development for a global company. Um, the global company got bought out by another global company. And uh, that company had 49 research and development centers worldwide. And the one that I was at uh, here in West Virginia was built in the late 40s and early 50s. So it was very antiquated. Uh, so it was identified to uh, be shut down. Hmm. So they shut it down uh, and I was eligible for full retirement uh, and eligible for some federal training programs. Uh, so that's how I went back to school at 55 
uh, and got a college degree in woodworking. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Now, I did have a side business while I was working in the chemical industry. I still had a side business doing woodworking, uh, much like, well, probably like you and Chris, you know. Uh, but um, in 2011, I started full time. And so when you started that full time, how did you go about finding clientele? Um. Well, I belong to an organization here in West Virginia called Tamarack, and it is a very uh, high level, the best in the state. Uh, I got juried into Tamarack, and that helped me establish uh, uh, my credentials and uh, to find clientele through them. And then once, uh, once word spread, then people started coming to me. I did do some craft shows uh, for a few years to keep my name out there, but Generally speaking, I don't do those now. Okay. Is it, uh, was it hectic to do the craft show scene? Yeah, it was, you know, it's nice because you get to see the people and everything, but from a business perspective, uh, you really don't get paid for it. I mean, your time um, is, is not recouped uh, unless you mark up your products, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you can sell directly to the customer without going to a craft show or anything, then uh, it lowers your overhead. Gotcha. So and then, of course, if you do uh, custom work where you sell the piece before you build it, which uh, that's what I've been doing here lately, and that, that's even better. Oh, very cool. Yeah, you do quite a few interesting pieces, so that uh, that probably played played well in your hand having that interest in the older products like that. Yeah, I like to look at some of the old um, uh, antique pieces here in this area and then uh, uh, modernize them, mm -hmm. uh, give them a, a, a modern twist and, and build it that way, design and build it that way. But taking into account everything from utility, because see what I really like about the show is that you have it's almost like two shows in one. You have a history lesson, kind of how the whole, you know, why, okay, so you're about to build this, but why was it used? What was the history behind it? How did it fit into everyday Appalachian life? And then you're building it with your twist on it, which is, see, I like history. So for me, it was a great show to watch. That, that's exactly right, Mike. And what I try to do is educate the younger generation because these pieces, uh, they have no knowledge of and they mm -hmm. don't comprehend uh, the purpose of them. So that's what I do, do the research and show uh, why it was built the way it was built, the purpose of it, uh, and how it was used. And where did you, and curious though, where did you get the information on that? Like what's your resource for West Virginia Appalachian Furniture? Well, uh, it's good you asked that. There is none. <laughs> there, is, there are no books. Um, and hopefully that'll change in a few years. There, there are no books. Uh, there's nothing like that. So basically you do research on the individual pieces. And I like to go to places in West Virginia that are historic, uh, where they have documented uh, the history of the piece, uh, of, the, of the grounds, of the estate. Uh, and some of those pieces were built at that location. And they have it documented when it was built, you know. Um, so, so that's, 
most of my research that way. Hmm. Okay. Because I know North Carolina, there's an association in Winston-Salem that basically in like, I think it was the 60s, would send people out to go inventory what furniture people had in their homes, what they knew about it, the heritage behind it that way, and started cataloging it because the exact same thing. There wasn't any record of these things. Yeah. Except for a bill of sale they could find here and there, which was cool to look at in the museum as far as, you know, how they build it out and how they did the money transfer. But yeah, that's why I was curious because after going to that museum, I'm thinking there really isn't a whole lot on this subject. There, there's not. Uh, one, one of the more interesting pieces, I think, historically, uh, I built a, uh, a cradle and that was uh, in Beckley, West Virginia. Uh, and the land was granted to Alfred Beckley for his service to the country. And of course, he was in the state of Virginia. He never came to the western part of Virginia. Uh, but his son came in, uh, had about a thousand acres and established uh, the city of Beckley. And he had he built a home and it was called the Wildwood House Museum. And it is still there, has not been moved or relocated. Uh, but they had the history and document of all of the items in the house that were built there on that estate uh, and when it was built uh, and who used it and how it was used. So the, the, the cradle, uh, they even have what year it was built and everything. And it, it was pretty unique. So hmm. that's an example of some of the items that I like to feature. Oh, very cool. Because it gives... Yeah also more history to those places that are in West Virginia that people can go and visit at that point. Yes. When I set this up, the small business administration said that I was uh, multi-demographic. And one of the things that I do is I uh, encourage uh, travel, uh, tourism uh, in West Virginia, and hopefully the whole Appalachian area eventually. Uh, so by finding these places that are uh, historic interest, Viewers will see the show, and then they may want to actually go to the uh, uh, place and, and see for themselves. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah, we we get a lot of stuff like that where, you know, people who are interested in those cooking shows, anytime they're featured on one, people will actually flock to those places for the food based on what the, you know, host or chef introduced. And you're kind of doing that for a, from a woodworking perspective. So woodworkers who actually have you know, desire and passion about the past and how woodworking has, you know, ma maintained through the years that that's a huge draw and interest for them. It so, is. It is. Yeah. That's exactly right, Chris. Yeah. So we got some comments here real quick. Ryan K says Mountaineer pride. Yes. John says, good evening. What nonners. Good evening, sir. You and Michelle, uh, Jacob Lynn's Lipscomb says oh. Jacob and Larry are watching. Hey, Larry. Uh, Dennis Mecco. Yep. Hello, I know West him. Virginia. Yep. And he also says that uh, Norma Ambridge did the same thing, uh, but has retired. And we need someone like Gerald to carry the tradition of building antique furniture. Congratulations to Gerald for picking up the torch. Absolutely. It, it, he's exactly right, but I do mine just a little bit different. Norm would go to a museum and then he would talk uh, to the curator or the docent at the museum about the piece. What I do is I go to a museum, uh, get permission, and have a person in period attire uh, demonstrate 
using that piece, how it would have been used mm. uh, four or five generations ago. So they're in period attire uh, using this piece, whatever it is, uh, and it's in uh, uh, black and white, and that's the intro to the show. So he's he's exactly right. It is very similar, only I give a little bit more uh, personal insight into the piece itself. It's what happens if the History Channel picked up Norm Abrams, in my opinion. Yeah, you good, get a little, good. you get a little bit of that something where, as you're watching it, you're not just getting the woodworking part, but you're learning something and something yeah. maybe you've seen at a, uh, uh, what do you call it? You know, seen somewhere in a state sale or something. Yeah, and good people analogy. don't know what it is. Yeah. And one of the things I like to do is look at how it was built and, and then explain to the viewers why it was built that way. And, and a good example is uh, an icebox. Everybody knows, everybody, all, all our generation knows what an icebox is. Well, if you look at all the iceboxes, they used quarter sawn white oak. Now, a woodworker will know why they used quarter sawn white oak. But if you're not a woodworker, you don't know that that is the most stable wood. You know, if it's quarter sawn, it is far more stable than if it's rift sawn mm. or plain sawn. And with an icebox, on one side of the wood, you have cold damp. And on the other side, you have just the opposite, hot, hot humid. So you need wood that is very, very stable. So that's the reason the iceboxes were built out of quarter sawn white oak. You learned it here first, boys and girls. <laughs> Yeah, because I found out that they make gutters out of white oak mm -hmm. because it would withstand the water for several seasons. They didn't have metal, you know, what, 1800s or before that even, in the seven, late 1700s in Winston-Salem there. All, everything in Old Salem was made out of white oak as far as the gutters go. I like, uh, I've been to Williamsburg several times, and I like the way they do the gutters at Williamsburg. They don't have a gutter up on the edge of the roof. They let the water come off the roof and go all the way down to the ground. And on the ground, they build a gutter out of a brick. Hmm. And it channels the water down, and, and then they control it, and it goes out that way. I mm -hmm. thought that was pretty neat. That is pretty neat. Lasts a lot longer, yeah. too. Yeah, easier to maintain. Well, I see Jason says that uh, you've got some serious yep. skills in woodworking. Thank you, Jason. I, I know Jason. He's He's a good guy, yeah. And then Ryan says that you guys should team up and write the book. Well, uh, it, it's funny you should mention that because I'm working on season three. Uh, when I'm done with season three, I should have enough items, hopefully, to compile together uh, for a book. Nice. So that, that's that's the intent, lo long-range intent. Yeah, because Dennis says three seasons on PBS can turn into a good book. You're correct, Dennis. Yep. All right. I'd buy now, that. Neighbor, you got Mr. Robert Bird. Yes, sir. He's a he's a good neighbor. Uh, yeah, he's a woodworker. He's been by my shop a few times. Yep. I'd say the only difference between Roy Underhill and Gerald is that Gerald is a bit more serious. Well, R Roy does everything with hand tools, and uh, I, I have done some pieces that are all hand tools, but that is a huge amount of work. Uh, I consider myself a hybrid woodworker. I really like to use the machinery to get the wood dimensioned uh, and get it close. And then I prefer to do the uh, joinery with uh, uh, hand tools. That makes sense because that was one of the things that I had noticed. So if you go to um, Appalachian Heritage Woodshop, mm -hmm. Gerald's got a, a basically like a blog on there. I think, what, oh, sawdust from the shop? Yeah. Yeah. 
And in that is actually some pretty fun reads because I like the way that you look at woodworking. And so one of the things that were in there was talking about this is the tortoise and the hare personalities. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I actually got that, uh, from when I was in the chemical industry, I was a, uh, in a supervisory role and I had one individual that was extremely slow, extremely slow. And management came to me and said, you need to get this guy to be more productive, get him to speed up. And I had to explain to them, I said, you don't understand. For some people, it's very difficult to speed up, just like for some people, it's very difficult to slow down. Everybody has their own pace and they're comfortable with that pace. And if you get them out of that pace, they're uncomfortable and more apt to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. So management accepted that and they said, okay, no problem. Uh, but yeah, woodworkers are the same way. Some people uh, are, are very, very fast, and some people are very slow, methodic, deliberate, uh, and, and that's the way I am. I, I can be fast, but I find it is not as enjoyable. Uh, if, if I go at a slower pace, more methodic, uh, to me, it's more relaxing, and, and uh, I get more out of it. Yeah, if I'm going to make mistakes, I want to make them slow and steady. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. And then uh, one of the other things I really enjoyed on there, because I got a couple of them, but um, so uh, there's two more really, but show and dough, show or dough. There you go. I like I, that one. I actually got that from the professor uh, that was over the woodworking program when I got my degree. He said there are two types of woodworkers. Those that woodwork for money and those that woodwork with money. Uh, and a lot of people that are hobbyists uh, will go out and spend a lot of money and purchase a tool and never really get the money back uh, through their business for that tool. And if you're a true businessman, uh, you know, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, some people... Uh, uh, work with money and some people work for money and and show and dough is 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 a takeoff on that and then uh i think every woodworker anyone who does any kind of cutting to process something can enjoy the just a hair more <laughs> now i got that when i was in the construction industry because you go to any construction site where you have carpenters and they'll be talking to each other and and some will in uh will inevitably say, cut it just a hair shorter. A and my uh, uh, foreman, I heard him ask a guy one time, he said, was well, that a red head or is that a red hair or is that a blonde hair? Or is that a black hair? They're all different thicknesses. Which one do you want? You know, so I thought that was amusing. Absolutely. Because it's always just a hair more or cut it a hair too short. Exactly. Yeah. It's a, apparently some sort of, you know, accurate measurement that woodworkers use one of one of my favorite blogs is uh and, and i'll ask this to the uh, listeners uh what is uh, what what is common between a woodworker and a bride-to-be mm, throw it in the comments below there you go we'll think about a, it a bride-to-be will spend a huge amount of time picking out the perfect dress you know for her for her moment her glory you know, and a woodworker should spend a lot of time getting the grain just right 
and matched up whenever they glue up something and, and do a piece. So that that's uh, well, that that right there was one of my favorite logs. And then I think the most important one, which I'm 100% lazy on, but I'm glad I learned it, was the foundation of woodworking. Yeah. Uh, gosh. I can't recall that one all. Sharpening. Yes. Yes. <laughs> You're exactly right. And again, I got that from an, an old, old woodworker. Uh, he, you know, doesn't do computers and doesn't do any of that stuff. And uh, he, he told, he's the one that told me, he said that, uh, you know, if you can't sharpen, you can't do any woodwork. And, and he called it the foundation of woodworking. It does well, make life a lot easier. I'm out then. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's, that's true with machinery as well as hand tools. You know, oh, yeah. if you have a bandsaw with a dull blade, you're, you're not going to be cutting very accurate. Well, the key behind that is you could still be a woodworker if you can't sharpen. You just have to know someone who can sharpen. Or buy a lot of new blades. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was yeah. always told in the shop by the older guys that it, uh, you never get cut by a sharp blade. You'll always push harder, make a mistake, do something dumb with a dull blade, then you yeah. will get cut with a sharp blade. That was one of the first lessons I learned when, now I'm from the Appalachian area. I'm, I'm from West Virginia. North Carolina is, is part of the Appalachian area also. I would hope so. My, my generation, uh, boys were given a knife at a very, very young age, pocket knife. Mm -hmm. And when I was given a pocket knife, that was my first uh, uh, lecture, my first lesson was a dull knife is more dangerous than a sharp knife. Yeah. Yep. That was the first thing I was told. I was one of that Swiss Army knife, though, at 12 years old. I couldn't wait. I remember. Yeah. Still got it, too. Good. Good. Yep. And so, oh, man, we got lots of comments. I apologize. But uh, Miss Marla White joined us. She said, sorry, late to the party. And then uh, I'll skip right over Mr. Scott Houston's. But Mr. Uh, Smith Black says, hello, good to see our friend on here. MD&T watching from West Virginia. Thank good. you for joining us. No, let's see here. And the cut will be a lot more ragged and slow to heal. Yeah, that is very true. <laughs> Sounds like words of experience there. Yeah. yeah, and then there you go. Ryan Case, as I always tell my wife, a sharp tool is a safe one. Yeah. Yep, because it really is. You're not having to put as much pressure into it. it. It's doing the job that you were thinking it should be doing. And it's easier to control. Yeah, it's almost like a paper yep. cut. They're always jagged and just more rough. Yeah. Yeah, sharp knife cut, you can you can uh, tape up a little easier and pretty well guarantee it'll heal nice. Those dull blade cuts, yeah, they just, they're, they're kind of gnarly. Yeah, yeah, they are. So speaking of white oak, um, you are giving away an awesome selection of hardwoods to the viewer, to a viewer tonight. Yes. So Thank are you. we going to do it as a viewer tonight or are we going to give it like two days? Well, what did you want to do? It's up to, it's up to you. Here's, here's what I was thinking. Uh, well, let's talk about the wood first. It's about a hundred dollars worth of native Appalachian hardwood. This is wood that I had, uh, in my wood storage uh, area, and, and I had to clean out to make room for more coming in. So there's some uh, curly cherry, sassafras, birch, red elm, walnut, and quarter sawn white oak. Uh, it's about 20 board feet, so that's about $100 worth. 
And depending on where it goes, I will only pay to have it shipped in the continental U.S. Okay. Because if it goes out on the West Coast, the shipping will be equal to the value of the wood. If it goes to North Carolina from, from uh, where I'm at, it'll be about $35 to ship. So There's always uh, media mail, right? What's that? Have you ever shipped anything through media mail? No, I haven't. Oh, it's great. I shipped a bunch of mango from Hawaii. Media mail told them it was all books. Oh, just, you know, FYI, it's books, but yeah. here's the wood real quick because Gerald did make a video. So as you can tell, that's a, those aren't short links. They're not scrap pieces. They're nice pieces. They're, they're four foot long and most of them are six to eight inches wide. Yeah. Well, how about this? When I win, what if I made a Saturday trip up to West Virginia and picked them up? That would be good, Chris. Uh, yeah. Come on up. You'll be <laughs> Why don't you just make the Saturday trip and help pack them? Yeah. I guess while I'm up there, I could hand deliver them back to whoever, if someone yeah, there you go. Carolina wins. But, but here's what I would like to do, Mike, if it's okay mm -hmm. with you. Always. Uh, you know, uh, the, the listeners, if they want to uh, uh, try to win this wood, uh, you know, first thing is uh, I would like for them to subscribe to my channel, YouTube channel. Uh, but the second thing is I would like for them to see if they can name a, an old piece of furniture from the Appalachian area, you know, that's designed for a specific task and is not used anymore, uh, and, and see if it's one I haven't uh, come across yet. That's a cool contest. Yeah, it is. All right, so I'll post the link here into the chat box for YouTube. I guess I'll do that for everybody. Now I think about it, that would be smart. There we go. I'm the guy behind the curtain. <laughs> yeah. But no, that'd be fantastic. And then we'll just, we'll let you kind of, so therefore it's, you know, all bias aside, we'll just kind of let you tell us how you would like to run it. Cause with contests and, and giveaways and stuff like that, it's, uh, you know, there's a hundred different ways to do it. So whichever way I'm fine with doesn't bother me at all. And it, that sounds, it, sorry, it sounds like Pennsylvania would be a good destination for that awesome selection of wood. Sure. C and C. Sure. Yeah. I would say just have them type in the comments uh, what they think, uh, uh, you know, would fit that description. And at the end of the show, we'll look at them and pick one of them out. All right. That'll work. So put your comment in there. And if you're listening to it after the fact, make sure you join us Wednesdays at 9 p.m. on Facebook and YouTube, where you can get live giveaways when next time Gerald's on. There you go. <laughs> yes, that wood would be really nice out there in Utah, since you're not going to find much curly cherry out that way. Sure. Uh, let's see here. Uh, and just to let the viewers know, Sassafras uh, I started not to include that, but I did. Sassafras is in the rhododendron family, and there's a blight right now which is spreading across the Appalachian area that is affecting the health of the rhododendron, and that includes the sassafras. Now, how bad that will be, I don't know. It's uh, it's only in a few states like Tennessee and, and, and in through there. It isn't all across the Appalachian area. Uh, yeah, I hope they I hope they learned a lot from the chestnut blight you know, how to somewhat control this. Well, that's sort of like the, um, um, the one that's going on now. Um, the ambrosia. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. So uh, for for those who are listening at home and and seeing ambrosia maple, the the different colors and everything for a while, probably what ten years ago, that was junk. No one wanted it. You get it for like a dollar a board foot. Now it's like the premium, and it's really hard to find good clear maple. Mike, have you ever seen tap hole maple? Maple? Not off the top of my head. Uh, you know, they tap the maple trees to get the sap out for a syrup. Well, that creates a hole just like the ambrosia beetle, only it's a lot bigger. Hmm. But you have the same thing. You have air get in there and you have the same condition. So it uh, it looks exactly like ambrosia, only the hole is uh, like a half inch. You still so have the, streaks up and down from it. So is the streaks much bigger and wider than yes. like the ambrosia? Oh, sweet. Yes. And and when they timber and take these trees, the loggers will cut that off. And see, that's always at the DBH or lower. So they would just chuck that aside and, and not take it. Well, now people are taking that and taking it to the mill and have it milled up. Get some beautiful wood if you don't mind a big hole. Hey, you can fill it. Let's see here. Okay, so here's a couple of comments, by the way. Uh, oh, also Connor's daddy, who likes to join us, and we appreciate you watching. He knows a tool collector that would love to win this. He's the tool collector, by the way. Good, good, yeah. What about a foot-pedaled sharpening stone? Mm. Uh, I have some friends that use them. Uh, I don't like using them. Um, for one thing, uh, most of those stones are not a true round. They're, they're slight, and, and, and when you're applying pressure, it's not even. It kind of bounces a little bit. Uh, I, you know, there's a lot of people that use them. I, I, I don't care much for them. Would that be something you could build out of that? Or is that? Would that be something that's a project you could build? You know, for. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a possibility. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. that that's that's a good uh, that, that's a good one. Yeah. What about a green river wood stick chair? I'd have to do a little bit of research on that, but that sounds pretty interesting. Yeah. yeah. See now. Okay. So this is an interesting question because this does come up as far as if you get into antiques, would a harvest table be considered Appalachian furniture? My mom has one um, yeah. from New Hampshire. It dates back to mm -hmm. late 1800s. Okay. I, I, I want to say two things there. First, when I look at Appalachian furniture, it's furniture that's in the Appalachian area. That doesn't mean that it is not also in other areas. So a harvest table would be in the Appalachian area, but it would also be in the New England area mm -hmm. in the southern state. Okay, A true harvest table is a table that is designed to take apart and store in a barn or a shed. And when you are harvesting and you have a lot of people there working, uh, uh, you know, bringing in the harvest, they would bring these tables out and assemble them and feed the crew right there. So that's a true harvest table. A lot of people are looking at uh, rustic kitchen tables and calling it a harvest table. And it's not really a harvest table. It is one that you can take apart and store. And it's only used when you have a lot of people uh, harvesting that you have to feed and you put it together. So yeah, that that's a real good example. Let's see. And then... Um... Ryan says, Gerald, are you seeing your pin oaks die prematurely in your neck of the woods? It's bad on the eastern panhandle. On my farm, I have that problem. Uh, and I checked with the forestry people about 10 years ago. 
the main reason it's occurring on my farm is because a lot of the oaks are getting to be uh, a little bit old. Mm-hmm. And as they get older, just like older people can't withstand uh, disease or uh, hot temperature or cold temperature as easy as a young person can, the trees are the same way. So an older tree, whether it be pin oak or whatever, uh, white oak, uh, they can't withstand a drought uh, as, as easy as uh, a young one can. So yeah, yeah, on my farm, I'm having that problem quite a bit. I really need to, really need to bring in uh, somebody with a chainsaw and cut several. Yeah, we had uh, that. I had we had that issue. I've got I had four pin oaks in the front yard, one big one in the side, and one big one in the back, and. We had a guy come trim some stuff up, and he said the one near the house needed to go. And so we had it completely taken down and ground up and had the rest of them heavily trimmed in hopes that they could, you know, refurbish themselves and figure something out. But I think the one in the back is probably not going to be far from needing to be taken down. Now, last week I uh, harvested a pine tree that uprooted. Uh I've talked to my neighbor today. I'm going to get three hickories off of him. And I bartered a couple weeks ago uh, for some cherry, walnut, maple, and white oak. Mm -hmm. So I'll be getting quite a few logs in the next few weeks and taking them to the mill mill it, and then put them back uh, to dry. I I like to air dry first and then kiln dry. Now I got a question. Uh, did you do the uh, when you hauled that one from your neighbor's that had fallen? Did you haul that old school with some mules, or did you pull it with a tractor? <laughs> um, actually, instead of using my tractor, I call on another neighbor that's got a tractor with a bucket on the front, and it's easier to pick it up and put it on top of my trailer that way. Mm-hmm. My tractor, I just have a pig pole, and it's a little bit awkward to work with it that way. But yeah. All right. Well, I was hoping you'd have pulled that thing with some with some mules or something, you know. But oh well, I guess we'll I guess you're you are modern. You bring yeah. some modern tools to the table. Sure. That that'll be for season four. Is that so he'll pull that off. Yeah. Because I, I always love uh there's I think there's a show called Axemen, and you know, all the groups they ch- they use chainsaws, but there's one group that that does everything where they haul it out with mules and stuff, and you know, I always enjoy kind of watching that that method because man there's those mules are are ornery but they sure get it done i really like watching uh draft horses pull uh i go uh, occasionally go to county fair where they'll have a draft horse pull that's a lot of fun and i have seen them pull logs uh, it's amazing how much weight they can pull and how low a, uh, impact they have on the soil uh, as compared to either a tractor or a skidder or a dozer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's see here. Sorry. Uh, what about a anti-commode Appalachia from Appalachia? <laughs> Jason, I, I appreciate that comment. And I've got to tell you this. As a woodworker, I get a lot of strange requests. And I had somebody come to me with an antique commode. And it had a drawer in the bottom of it. And you pull the drawer out, and there was supposed to be sand in there. So the the uh, estate owner would use it, and then some of the servants would come along and actually empty it, just like you would empty a cat litter box. Well, this guy came to me, and it was a beautiful antique. 
but the drawer was messed up. He said, can you make a new drawer? I said, yes, I can. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good thought. Uh, a lot of people are not aware of some of the old type of commodes that were used indoors, um, mostly by the affluent. You know, the, the uh, common people use the outhouse. Yeah, so that would be that would be interesting. I didn't know they had a basically a glorified cat litter box. It it is. I'll I'll send you some pictures. It's really something. It's got some nice brass on it. Very nice quarter sawn oak, uh, wood. Very comfortable set on. And and then after the uh, estate owner does his business and leaves, then somebody would come and, and pull the drawer out, and it's just like a cat litter box. Wow. And they would uh, change it. Now, do you think they had magazine racks in there at the time, or was that later? Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah. uh, let's see. So Learn Your CNC. Kyle says, my guess for the contest is the Appalachian ladderback chair with a woven seat. Uh, that's actually something I've been toying around with because uh, the, the woven seat, and uh, uh, the correct term is cane, caning seat, cane rush. Um you, you don't see those very often, and it's very hard to find somebody that can do that or repair those. So, uh, yeah, I've actually been thinking about doing a chair with a cane seat. You know, they're very comfortable, too. Oh, I'm so long. Good. Um, yeah, and then we've noticed that caning has become very popular in RVs for a way to put an insert in a door. Really? Yeah, it's huge. Now, you don't need the same tools that you would um, for doing a chair necessarily because a lot of people are just stapling it. Yes, I know. I've got a dog that's not feeling well. Um, but what's really cool is that they're putting it in there because it's lightweight. It has air in it. And so they can, and it gives it a nice touch. It looks good. Sure. But I think sure. I've added this banner for this show and that'll be schooled by Gerald. <laughs> it's painting, not a woven seat. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, let's see what else we got. A lot of guesses on, or a lot of different ideas. Um, and I like this one. What about a wooden rolling pin for making ravioli? And they say possibly from our Italian pop population in Fairmont, West Virginia. Yeah, I've actually done a little bit of research on that. Um, there are a lot of different kind of rolling pins. Some of them are very decorative. And when you roll them out, it creates a decorative dough. Uh, and some of them are designed where it'll create small pieces like the ravioli and you just mm -hmm. perforate, you know, tear it off. Yeah, those are pretty neat. Yeah. Because I've seen you do some turning. You had that, uh, and I didn't, and I apologize, I didn't grab the picture of it, but you did a, uh, like, curly maple, did it green, and it was a pizza cutter. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, a wooden hand plane would be a good project. <laughs> yeah, Dennis, uh, I, I've, I've got to tell you this. When I got my degree in woodworking, uh, I had to make a lot of tools because historically uh, people would have made their own tools. And uh, my instructor's philosophy was, if you build your own tool, then you will know how to use it, and how to maintain it, and all that. So I had to build uh, some wooden hand planes. Um, I, I built them and used them to show that they'd be used, and then set them aside and never used them again. Uh, personally, I don't like wooden hand planes. I like metal body planes. Uh, but that, that's a that's that's a good. Uh, that's that's a good project is a wooden body plane. Yeah. Sure. So, so what you're saying is you have shelves full of uh 
<clears throat> items that could be considered valuable. Yes. Handmade by Gerald Vance. And uh, auction those off and, you know, that's a grant. You wouldn't even need the grant anymore. You just, just sell off there your you old wooden hand tools. Sure. Now's a good time. Let's um let's we'll we'll talk about the grant and then we'll head okay. into Appalachian for season three. So the reason you couldn't join us for a while there was because it you were trying to get this grant. So tell us about the grant so we know it wasn't just our personalities you didn't like. <laughs> okay, now that that was my um um uh, my myself, uh my self-restriction. Okay. Um for season three, I, I need to get some publicity in order to get some underwriters. Mm -hmm. uh, so I applied for a grant uh, and the grant was finally approved. Uh, and uh, the grant is to market my program. And I've hired a great marketing firm in Charleston, West Virginia, Jim Strong and company. Uh, great guy. Um, he's close to my age. He knows a lot about the Charleston area. Uh, and he's going to help me uh, uh, make a bigger presence on social media as well as uh, hopefully get some sponsors or underwriters lined up. Well, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, we we understood for sure. You know, I mean, you're, yeah. you, you didn't want to be associated with riffraff here. You know, if you're <laughs> trying to get trying to get money from the, go from the yeah. government or from some foundation. Yeah, this is uh, let's see. I'm, I think uh, uh, I'm required to say. The funding is from a grant through West Virginia Department of Arts, Culture, and History with funding from National Endowment for the Arts. Nice. It's, that's the that's way it's at, that's the fine print. It's got to be said that way whenever I talk about it. So, uh, and uh, to let you know, that's my third grant that I've obtained. Well, that's good. I, I know that uh, those things are not always the easiest to get a hold of. And, um, you know, we're, we're excited for you because I know that means a, a big step in where you're trying to take this. Yeah. Yeah. I'm hoping to be able to uh, uh, get the uh, show um, distributed to other PBS affiliates. Uh, and hopefully that's what this grant will help me do. So that's good. Yeah. Yeah, as I've, I've seen some other people that are doing uh, PBS shows, and that's the that's the biggest thing is to get a station behind you, and then underwriters, and th there's a lot that goes on. It's not oh, something that's an easy task. No, I think uh, I think the attorneys I hired, I think it took them three or three and a half years to get the trademark. I mean, yeah. it's it's not a easy task. You know, there's a lot of work goes into it, a lot of pre work, a lot of paperwork. Um, my son has a degree in journalism, and uh, most universities, when they issue a, a, a degree in journalism, one of the classes that's required is called ethics in journalism. And the majority of that class deals with standards for PBS. Wow. They're, they're really different compared to all the other uh, media. But it's they good. You know, it, it raises the standard, so that's good. I was, gonna, I was wondering, since it's public broadcasting service, does any of it seem kind of out of date? You know, like they like they have a way of doing it, and it's been this way for a long time, and they're really not changing anything, or does it seem like they've actually dialed it in perfectly and to meet the criteria? Yeah, 
that I don't know, Mike. I think that would be up to the individual um, uh, stations, the way they manage or administer, okay. I would imagine. Uh, but I really don't know that much about it because, you know, once I produce the show, uh, I hand it over to West Virginia PBS, West Virginia Public Broadcast, and they do the scheduling and all that, and I have I have nothing to do with, with that. Okay. So that's, uh, see, I, I didn't know how that worked necessarily. So you produce it, send it to them, and then they're the ones basically distributing it. They, West Virginia has agreed to be my, what they call a presenting partner. Okay. So they will be presenting it uh, uh, to, to the NETA and to other affiliates. Yeah. So if in, if we're in North Carolina and we would like to see it, we would go to our local PBS station and say, we would like to see this on our local station. Do you know that? Cause I'm, see, that's what I'm curious is that if it's in West Virginia now and I want to watch more of it than on YouTube, I want to watch it when it comes on to support it Would do you know if that's the way I would go about that? Uh, well, that is a logical way. And that was my way of thinking. And when I was talking to the programming director at uh, KET, Kentucky PBS, uh, they said, no, you don't do that. Uh, they get bombarded with uh, people requesting shows or people going to them with a concept uh, and, and, and they don't have time for it. You know, they have a set way of, uh, of looking at something and, and a set way of presenting something. There's mm -hmm. about a, gosh, it's probably about a seven or eight page document that I have to fill out uh, to present the show. Wow. And, and it's pretty detailed, you know. So that's what they look at as opposed to um, a request. I mean, I, I'm like you, Mike. I thought that would be the best way to go. But they said, no, no, we don't want you to do that. Yeah, because I, I remember um, when I first met you at the Extravaganza and you came up to me and, and I had never heard of something like this. So I did a little research on it and it was like, but it's not in North Carolina, you know, and then when I present it, to the higher ups, they're kind of not quite sure how that would work out necessarily. And so then it was like a thing of like, well, then how do I get it down here? How does this something I can get? So I'll look more into that because I think it needs to be something that's broadcast in more states. However, that works, you know. I, I agree. And I would appreciate that, Mike. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, 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 and it's not a problem whatsoever. Um, but I look at it as in you're producing it and then you're sending it to the station. So you've already got the idea. You've already got it solidified. You know, it's not like you have this idea for YouTube and you're kind of trying it out with a few videos. It's instead, you've already got the format, you've already got it dialed in. So now it's just mm -hmm. getting it out to the masses. And see, most of the people, when they approach uh, PBS, they'll approach them with a concept. Nothing in hand, just an idea, mm -hmm. you know, and say, hey, I want to do this, you know, and, and I've already got the product and just literally handing it over to them. So now, now they do have to, they, they go through and make sure it meets all of their standards. You know, um, they're very, uh, um, very strict on uh, the credits, uh, very strict on uh, uh, the font, uh, on the size of the credits, uh, the verbiage, you know, the audible that goes with it. Uh, there, there's a lot that they look at and it has to meet certain criteria. The actual content, uh, I know this sounds strange, but content, they're not really that concerned about. They're more concerned about 
the logistics and the legal end of it. Mm-hmm. Sounds like government red tape. Well, but you know, they, they there's a reason for it. You know, they have a high oh, standard, yeah. and that's good. Uh, and, and you know, the West Virginia uh, public broadcast here is great to work with. Uh, I've established a good uh, uh, working relationship with them, and, and you know, they give me good uh, critical feedback. You know, and I take that to heart and make some changes. Um, one of the issues we have is with sound quality. You know, I can be talking in the shop, and the minute I turn on a piece of machinery, the de- uh, dBs go way up, you know. And and the decibels have to be within a range. Cannot exceed this and cannot be under this, you know. So that that's kind of tricky there, you know. Well, let me know afterwards or send me a DM. I can give you some ideas on how to control that. Some, some just different ways. I'll find out what you're using. We can work with that because there's there's a lot of different things nowadays with the, the way that um, sound has just evolved in general, especially microphones. We can figure out something for that, but, um, but, but you know what I mean, you know, mm -hmm. with with no sound you're, you're talking. And then when you turn a machinery on, you hear the machinery plus you're talking. Mm-hmm. And then you turn the machinery off. So, you know, the I, I think most of that is done in editing, I believe. Yep. But there's a, there's a couple of different ways to go about it. So we can we can take a look at that. Because, again, that's one of those things like woodworking. There's several different ways that people have done it. Yep. And it has worked fantastic. It just depends on what you're using, what you're comfortable with, and what will work with your production. Sure. So yeah. that's no problem. But uh, so Ryan K has come up with the greatest solution ever to my problem. And that is if you have Roku or the like, just change your PBS zip code to West Virginia and boom, it works. Hmm. That's a great idea. It's not going to get them in the market that I was hoping for, but at the same time, I can watch it anytime. I like it. Yeah. Well, see, since I'm the producer, I own it. So I put it on my YouTube channel. Which was smart. That's how I got to see most of it was YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. And I have a, uh, what I call a gentleman's agreement. Uh, you know, PBS said, you know, it's yours. You do what you want with it. And I said, well, I will not put it on YouTube until after it is aired on your on your station. So they get aired first and about a week later, then I put it on YouTube. There you go. That's a good gentleman's guy. agreement, though. Yeah, I mean, that really yeah. is. That's a good agreement. Yeah. Let's see, so West Virginia PBS in my area, Saturday afternoon woodworking shows includes the Appalachian Heritage Wood. Yeah, they they were very uh, uh, kind to me and gave me a good time slot. Hmm. Yeah. That was a good time slot. That or Sunday mornings, that was really the only two times. I remember woodworking shows being on as a kid on PBS. Sure. All right. So let's see here. Um, We'll have to do the ultimate question, which I'm sure you've been preparing for for weeks. Which kind of profile do you rather have on your routered uh, edges? Would you rather a chamfer or a roundover? Those are my only two options. For this game, and then you can answer the okay. way that you'd uh, rather do it. I, I do a roundover more than anything. Um, a chamfer is nice, but I do more of a roundover than anything. I knew I liked you. <laughs> <laughs> now, what's it going to be if it was um, your profile of choice? OG? OG, yes. It's just a round over and a round under. Yeah, changes direction there. Mm-hmm. Yep. So round over wins that one. There's three in the wheelhouse now. Yes. 
Chris, have you ever done a roundover with just a block plane? Not with just a block plane, but I've uh, I've used um, uh, uh, files and rasps to create okay. it. It's it's amazingly quick if you have a good block plane uh, uh, dialed in. It, it's amazingly quick to be able to round it over, and and it's uh, a quick learning curve to to get it fairly round. You know, it's mm -hmm. not a true round because it's a series of flats. Right. But uh, you can get it real real close. I've, I have never been good with with hand planes. I, I've tr I've tried different hand planes, and I hundred percent know it's got to be technique. I've just never worked with anybody who was good with them, so I've just always learned the wrong way, I guess. Uh, I think it's more to having a hand plane set up correctly than anything. Well, and I I, I attribute that to the technique because I know that the right depth the right angle the right setup with your blade the the sharpness of that blade and mm -hmm. of course then using a good hand plane that's flat also you know you don't want one that goes to the end and, and drops down because the you know it's arced so mm -hmm. you know there, there's a lot of things but i know that yeah that's not something i've ever been really really good at and i've not honestly put the time to learn the right way to do it either I, I got to tell you this, Chris, when, when I got my degree in woodworking, it was about the second week of the first semester. I mean, I knew it was coming because it was part of the curriculum. Uh, first thing in the morning, the instructor carried in a hard maple. It was about 10 or 11 inches wide, eight foot long, uh, eight quarter, two inches thick, rough. Mm. And he put it on two sawhorses and looked at me and he said, there you go. The hand planes are over there, flatten it out, you know, flatten it. And then, of course, get it uh, the same thickness all the way around. Oh, know. boy. Oh, man. I would have wound up with a toothpick. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of work in it, you know. And and I took advantage of that to try a lot of the different kind of hand planes, you know, different mm -hmm. sizes and everything. Uh, so it was a good learning experience, yeah. Yeah, that but, that but sounds it, pretty hardcore, though. I mean, if you're going to get into that fine woodworking, that, wow. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, if if you want to learn how to use hand planes, uh, flatten a board and put a yeah. square edge on it, you know, S4S. Hmm. Uh, it's a good idea, though. And plus, it also gives you more muscle memory with the hand plane. You're getting more intimate with the hand plane. You're getting... I guess training, but really you're getting to know that tool better if you're not accustomed to them. Well, you're learning yeah. a lot of the technique. Yeah. Yep. Skewing the, skewing the plane just a little bit uh, makes an entirely different cut than if the plane is just parallel with the grain, you know. But Dennis makes a really good point. Is the profile on top of the shelf or on the bottom of the shelf? Hmm. For, the, for the round over or for the OG? Good I question. say both. I say both. it's however you want to make it. Either yeah. way, it's a roundover. It's a roundover under a roundover. So it's <laughs> what I like about Dennis. He doesn't realize that this is like your third point, but at the same time, he's almost stealing your thunder. <laughs> Could be on both the top and the bottom. Yeah, then there'd just be a bull yeah. nose. Yeah. Oh, so let's take a but, look real quick at some of the stuff you have done, Gerald. Um, what's his bench? That is a bucket bench, yes. Made out of 
uh, walnut, and uh, that is, I believe, spalted maple for the leg. Are the legs eight quarter? They are eight quarter, and it doesn't look like it. Uh, they're splayed out. I believe it's three degrees. Wow. So just some of the things you can look forward to when you check out the Appalachian Heritage Woodshop. Um, I do like the beginning. It's it's kind of fun. But I noticed when I was looking at this beginning and, and of the website is that you had this sign. Mm-hmm. And in this sign, it's gorgeous. But I'm thinking that that may not be done with hand tools. No, that was done with a laser engraver. And that was actually a second uh, uh I, I was working on a piece for a client, and I don't have a laser engraver. So when I have a request to have something engraved like that, I sub it out to a friend of mine that does have. And he always likes to have a piece of scrap wood to test uh, the uh, laser engraver on. Because, you know, the, the speed and, and the mm-hmm. power uh, is different for each species of wood and everything. So that was the last piece of that uh, ambrosia maple. Uh, and I picked that up for scrap and took it there. And, and he did a little bit. And uh, I looked at it and I said, well, why don't you just go ahead and do this? And he just typed that in and did that. And I just hung it up on the shop wall. It looked so like that... the ends had a round over on them. <laughs> what, what was that? I said it looked like the ends had a round over on them. <laughs> They do, and uh, if you notice, Chris, you notice the ends are also slightly uh, contoured. Mm-hmm. Uh, my philosophy is when you have a uh, live edge, if you square cut the live edge, it's too abrupt mm-hmm. uh, and doesn't look uh, good. So you put just a little bit of curvature on it. Yep, put a little Which arc on the end. I like that. Yeah, and it yep. keeps the keeps the uh, bark from wanting to peel away too. If it's a crisp edge, it'll pop off easier. That's true. Never thought about that, Mike. Yeah. And, and what I always like to see is not just a square, a straight, a square straight cut off, but a actual just a slight little bevel mm-hmm. on there as well. So. Yeah. And then let's see here. Um, it, so this looks like it's a solid piece that is all carved out. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know where that came from. It's on your website. It is. Yeah. <laughs> may want to may want to check with the I'll person who runs that out. thing. Well, forget I ever mentioned that. <laughs> it's a plastic mold, Bolton China. <laughs> well, there you go. You just inspired uh Kyle would learn your CNC that a curved end is a good idea. Yeah. And we'll hit on that because he is a new sponsor. Is that Academy? Good. LearnYourCNC.com is where you can learn Vetric from everything from Cut 2D all the way up to Aspire. And you can do it at your own pace. Love it. It's great times. Kyle, thank you so much. And uh, everyone check out Learn Your CNC Academy. I've got so much stuff on the screen, I forgot how to take it off. <laughs> <laughs> so, so much going on. Comments. And that's, and that's and the end of the show. show. Yeah, well, <laughs> thanks for staying this long. Good gracious, but uh okay, so the I'm guessing for you this is this was a big moment is to make this piece here. Uh that was my senior piece. Uh we had to design we were not allowed to build from blueprints. We had to design everything. Hmm. Uh and that, that of course, as you can tell, is a Queen Anne. But what you can't tell, it, there are three hidden compartments in there. 
because during that time frame, uh, banks weren't that uh, common and business was conducted uh, at, the, at the estate. So uh, you would hide things inside your desk. So, yeah, that is curly cherry. And again, it's hard to see, but there's accent walnut uh, around the uh, drawers um, and around the top molding. Um, of course, mm. nice, nice carving down there on the front. And uh, of course, the cabriole legs and the drop front. So you had to do all of, you designed it, but then you had to complete it. Yes. And when I first saw this, cause I think there's another picture and I didn't grab it and I'll go look for it real quick. Cause it shows you showing where the hidden compartments are. Yes. Um, and you kind of do see a little bit more of that, uh, the walnut around the maple or cherry. Cherry. Mm-hmm. When you were in school doing this, what was the criteria for the finish used? Did you have to keep it period? specific or could you do whatever no they they pretty much left that up to me and uh you know i one of the guys there was telling me this is how you need to do it you need to use a die not a stain but a die and i was familiar with dyes and and i custom mix them and everything and he said no this is what you do you put on a lemon yellow and then you put on uh, i think it was a reddish collar over top of it and I thought, uh, no, I'm not going to build this piece and put a lemon yellow finish over it, you know. But uh, he assured me he wasn't joking. And I went and got some scrap uh, curly cherry and uh, did it the way he recommended. Uh, lemon yellow, let that dry. And then the uh, red over top of it. And because it's curly, it, gave it, a, little, uh, gave it a little bit more depth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the collar turned out really good. Yeah, the color did turn out really good, and it really accents the the pop of the grain on there. Yes. Yeah, because when, when you see the two pictures, because of the lighting, so being someone who looks at finishes a lot, I noticed right away that there was a color difference on the right panel, and I was curious if it was a two-step dye process. It, it was, yes. That's cool. I, I love the grain on that. Yeah. And that was, uh, that was mixed with water, not alcohol. So that was all water-based dye. Well, what I did was uh, the, the dye that I used was a powder, not a liquid, a powder. And you mix it, and you can either mix it in hot water or alcohol. If you mix it in alcohol, the alcohol evaporates very quickly. Mm-hmm. And that means when you're applying it, if you uh, have a large surface, you're more apt to get what's called a lap mark. Yeah. Whether you wipe it on or put it on with a brush, you know, it, it's going to dry before you get all of it on. And then wherever it overlaps, it's going to be a little bit darker. So if you use a water base, it, it, it prevents that because it doesn't uh, evaporate quickly. So you can put it on a large surface and let it all dry slow and evenly. So you get an even collar. Good stuff. There you yep. go. You learned it here free, first. That's Free right. lesson. Free lesson. Free lesson in dyes. <laughs> Yeah, no, dyes are, they've been around for ages and they're also an enemy to a lot of the painters out there who are painting furniture. So it's, but it's one of those things that it really accents the wood grain without losing the transparency. Mm. You know, you get the color without losing the grain. Yeah. Basically, where a stain, you lose the grain. Correct. 
You'll see. Uh, also, Gerald takes pictures like me with no smile. I noticed that too, Kyle. I will give you <laughs> that, that. That's true, Kyle. And I have a lot of people tell me that, but uh, yeah. That's why I found, I was trying to find one and this one here, your cheeks are a little pulled. Like there's a smile about yeah. to happen. Yeah. But you know, I went looking through and I was just like, oh man, he doesn't smile. Yeah, if you, if you have, you, you're probably not not you're not familiar with that, but but uh, we we chuckle because Kyle went to Hawaii, and every picture he posted online, not a one of them he had a smile. Every really? single one of them, he was straight faced, and we're like, "This is the guy that goes to Hawaii and does not have a good time." <laughs> Doesn't wow. look like he's like, having a good time. He said he had a great time, but at the same time, every picture, everyone else around him smiling because they're in Hawaii. Kyle, straight faced, sure. poker face, <laughs> poker face. Yeah, yeah. He's one of those that laughs and smiles. And then when they say, all right, say cheese, he goes. Because <laughs> backstage yeah. before he got in, he's, I mean, he's always smiling. So that's why I, I got a crack yeah. on him for that one. Yeah. Uh, so I want to thank you very much. And did you want to do your contest winner tonight? Or did you want to just see in the comments and kind of well, get an idea? It's up I to you. Like, I kind of like that, uh, the, the chair with the caning. Okay. Uh, who who did that? I I like that idea. I'm pretty sure it was. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll I'll schedule a whole weekend. I'll come up on a Saturday. There you go. The wife the wife and I'll stay at somewhere up there, and then we'll drive back on Sunday. So sure. I'll be glad to pick that up because that's just a hop, skip, and a jump to my friend Kyle, who's over in Pennsylvania. Well, since oh, Kyle yeah. was the one that came up with the idea or had the idea, I think Kyle needs to go down to the shop to get the wood. Chris needs to go up and then make it a big ordeal. There you yeah. go. Actually, yeah. I've got an open shop scheduled in Saturday, uh, July 23rd. He goes, the My snow going to be melted is... by then, Kyle? Come on up, Chris. That'd be fun. Yeah, there you go. So July 23rd, he's got an open shop day. We'll see if we can get all that yep. worked out. That'd be fun. Yep. Well, congratulations. So where, is, where is Kyle in Pennsylvania? Outside of um, Steelers country. Gosh, no, he's yep. not up there. Oh, it's going to drive me nuts. He'll tell us in a second. You don't have to post your address, Kyle. Just in yeah. the old city where you live. <laughs> Yeah. Don't forget there's a 15 second delay. So he's probably like, uh, yeah, see, snow is gone now. He'll be there in a minute. <laughs> We're all waiting on you, Cal. Northeast PA. Oh, well. That narrows it Cal down. Just, Cal, just uh, contact me uh, through an email with your uh, name and address, and I'll uh, get that wood bundled up, sent up to you. And I expect Ladder to see some... chair. I expect to see some results that you've incorporated your CNC knowledge there, Kyle, to uh, make something beautiful out of that. Yep. Would it be possible, and this is just thinking outside the box, but Kyle could do some parts on the CNC for your chair build? Sure. Because, see, he's he's got extensive knowledge in, in CNC design. To where he could probably recreate a part, but at the same time, it'd be kind of interesting to see him recreate this part and then give it to you. And then you put it all together with the caning and everything. Mm -hmm. It'd be a one-off. Oh, that's a collab I'd like to see. Yeah, it'd sure. be a collab. Oh, a and then we nice could have job. you uh, both back on here to talk about your chair. Yeah, let's do that. There you go. I like it. <laughs> Well, Gerald, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I've had a, I've had a great time, and I'm glad you finally were able to make it on. Really am. 
Yeah, we're excited. Uh, Mike, is Klingspore going to have their extravaganza this coming fall? As far as we know. Good. And it'll be uh, in person, not virtual? Yeah, it'll be in person, not virtual. I'm trying to think what the dates were. I think it was the 23rd. October? Yes, Mm -hmm. always October. I think it's the 22nd, uh, 21st, 22nd. I think it's that weekend. So that's the fourth Saturday, technically. It's a lot of Saturdays in October. Jeez. But yeah, so that should be there. But um, as it gets closer, and of course, depending on how things are in the world at that exact two weeks beforehand, we'll see how it goes. Okay, good. But um, yeah, so thank you very much for everyone who came out to watch tonight and support yeah, we Gerald. Appreciate it. We do appreciate it. And uh, don't forget to check out Whatnot Podcast uh, on all of your favorite podcast things. And hopefully this will be out within like two weeks I got to get caught up. So therefore I'm pushing myself to get all these caught up. So you'll be out there, Gerald, in about two weeks. Okay. The, the video will be out there quickly and the audio only. Yeah. That's It'll okay. be a minute. It'll be yeah, a minute. We love you, brother. We love you. <laughs> I know I'm slack, right? I'll tell you all you want to know about audio. It's just trying to splice these things together. A lot of fun. Oh, so thank you again for joining uh whatnot podcast Wednesdays at 9 PM. I'm Mike Z. I'm still Chris. And wait a minute. Yeah, I was pointing the right direction. I always do that backwards. Thanks, Gerald, for uh, joining us, and we had a good time. Thanks, sir. Thank you. Hey, wait. And all of you, enjoy your Appalachian heritage. There you go. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Have a good night.